mahogany kitchen table lay at the center of family life. Our dining room table was a stage set only for special occasions. Its solid ebony surface, bare but for a table runner and centerpiece, stood encircled by empty chairs, waiting. The dining room stillness evoked that of our church between masses. As a child, I was often drawn into that ambiance of peaceful expectancy. I would stroke the wood, which was always smooth and warm. When the sun shone through the bay window, bright rays heated the ebony to a comforting hot water bottle temperature. Beneath my fingers, the subtle ridges of ebony grain felt like single strands of fine hair draped across a sheet. Together they mapped a miniature land of dry creek beds and meandering oxbows, a magical wilderness that could expand every Christmas and Easter simply by adding a single leaf. The legs of table and chairs alike spiraled down to the carpet like plump corkscrews. The chair cushions were gentle domes of velvet held to the wood by brass rivets. Those domes were so hopeful, so promising, like buns just beginning to rise. Only two of the chairs had arms, the ones at the head and foot of the table. I imagined these were thrones for the king and queen. On the dining room wall, a turbulent, dark blue ocean crashed on the shore of an ornate gilt frame. This same ebony tabletop was also used for holiday feasts. We would drape a padded cloth over the ebony tabletop to protect its surface, then dress it with a linen tablecloth, brass candlesticks, wine jugs of cut lead crystal, white plates with silver leaf borders, and silver cutlery. And then came the food. Preparations began days ahead of time. We made the pasta by hand. We created the fillings from a combination of three different meats, cooked three different ways, and hand-cranked them through the meat grinder while they were still warm. Broths were simmered for hours, sauces concocted and seasoned to perfection, cheeses brought to correct temperature, prosciutto wrapped around grissini. When everything was ready, the parmigiano grated, the wines decanted, the espresso ground, the grappa chilled, the mandarins and in-shell nuts jumbled artfully together in a bowl, the panettone and torone displayed on the sideboard. We'd dress up. The women wisely wore skirts with elastic waistbands. The men would choose loose pants and belts of forgiving girth. We'd sit down for pranzo around two in the afternoon. Each time a course was brought out, exclamations erupted. We'd interrupt our conversation to offer tasting notes to the chef. Stomach space had to be budgeted, lest we be forced to pass on a favorite dish later. Seconds were always offered. Precarious things, those seconds. Should you have more lasagna and revel in a particularly velvety and balanced bechamel, or save room for the roast pork, the artichokes, the funghi trifolati, or that extra slice of panettone. Then we get back to eating and drinking, non-stop storytelling and repartee. All the while, 
an eclectic mix of records spun on the turntable, Ramirez's Misa Criola, Debussy's La Mer, Xavier Cugat's Viva Cugat. Hours later, we'd wander from the table painfully full. My brother, sister, and I devised after-dinner rituals to cope with the overindulgence. If eating effervescenti and lying on the kitchen floor didn't help, we'd hang upside down from the back of the couch. Later, when my brother got a waterbed, we would go there to lounge and groan together. We called it blorbing. Meanwhile, my father would sit at the piano. He played by ear and well. Sometimes he would sing along. After my mother died, we had a single Christmas meal without her before my father married his old flame. Circumstances had intervened in their young love. After marrying other people and living completely separate lives in different countries, they had reunited in their mid-fifties and found the spark still alive between them. That's it. If you want to know the rest, you'll have to buy the book. Bye.